Thank you so much for being here today and taking the time to become the best version of yourself. After a few weeks of silence, we're back again with a brand new episode, and we've got some fantastic guests lined up over the next few weeks. This one, however, is perfect for establishing valuable routines and habits in your life, along with some other tips and tricks to stay disciplined and motivated to chase your dreams. Enjoy the episode. Michael Chernow is an NYC-based entrepreneur. He's the founder of sustainable seafood restaurant Seymour's, co-founder of the famous meatball shop, and co-founder of Well Well. Michael is a restaurateur, entrepreneur, TV host, fitness personality, and family man. And he's dedicated to inspire the world through positivity, hospitality, and service. Michael, welcome to The Forever Student. Thanks so much for having me, man. It's a pleasure. Could you... Just off the bat, talk about when you began your journey as an entrepreneur and restauranter and, and what that looked like. Yeah, sure. Uh, it's a really interesting question because, I, I mean, if you're asking me when I began my journey as an entrepreneur, uh, I, th- I think I was about six years old uh, or so. I've always thought entrepreneurially. I don't know where it came from. I have a, I have a podcast called Born or Made. And, and you know, in my podcast, I ask the question, you know, do we think, or do, you know, I ask my guests, do you think you were born with an inherent or innate ability to do what you do today to inspire so many people, or if you were made over time, you know, and, and I, and that, that concept came from this, my own sort of self, you know, exploration in trying to understand what drove me to want to make things and sell things and do things uh, at such a young age. You know, my, I have a sister that grew up in the same apartment as I did. And, you know, she's a teacher. Um, my mom was a secretary. Uh, my dad was an electrician. So, you know, I don't know what drives us. However, I do know it's, you know, five, six years old. Whenever I was bored of a toy, I made it my, my job to sell it on the street in front of my apartment. And so anytime I would, you know, have like a bunch of, of, of toys, He-Man figures, GI Joes, whatever, uh, you know, game pieces, um, I would ask my older sister to come downstairs with me. I'd lay out a blanket on the corner of 87th street and second Avenue and, uh, and try to sell my toys for a buck. Um, you know, that turned into, walking dogs at a very young age. Um, and I had this, you know, by the time I was 11 years old, I had this like pretty substantial dog walking business. Um, and then, uh, once, once a place would hire me, uh, I was, uh, delivering videos for couch potato video at the same time, delivering food for a a restaurant called candle cafe. And I was doing it on my rollerblades. (laughs) Um, so I've always thought entrepreneurially, it's always been in my, in my blood. I don't know why uh, necessarily, but I do know it exists. Um, my grandfather was an entrepreneur, so it could be genetic. Um, but, uh, you know, my career in the restaurant world started when I was a kid. You know, I, I, I got my first job in a restaurant when I was 12, 12, 13. And uh, I felt like I'd arrived. I, I, I really enjoy humans. I think my, my superhuman power is really connecting with other human beings and making them happy. I mean, that's what, you know, I really love the service component of life. Uh, I really enjoy uh, being of service and, and helping other people. It ultimately makes me feel really good. Um, and so I love it. And, and obviously the hospitality industry really is, is, is a perfect, is a perfect land site for someone like me. And, uh, and so I, I, you know, I, I got that job in a restaurant and I, I continued working in restaurants until COVID hit. Uh, you know, I, I never did not have a job or owned a restaurant, you know, for, for 27 years. Um, and, uh, but I opened my first restaurant when I was 28 years old called the meatball shop. And I just knew that that was going to be, um, I knew that I was going to have my own place. Uh, when I was 23, I made a decision to, to stop drinking and stop partying. Cause I was definitely heading down a, a pretty dark path with that being, uh, you know, a, a, a person of the night working in nightlife in New York city, very easy to get caught up in the BS of, 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 you know, the, the crutches. Um, and so I just knew that I had more to offer. So I said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm not going to slow down with this stuff. I'm actually going to stop completely. And I did. 
I made a decision to completely stop and I haven't started since I made the decision uh, again. And, uh, and I, and I went to culinary school, you know, built a network of people around me and raised money very quickly for the first business, the meatball shop that I opened up with my partner, Dan Holzman. We opened that thing up insanely successful crash course in business, raised a bunch more money, opened up five more restaurants within two and a half years. I sold some equity to my partners there because I found out that I really love the creative component of the business. Um, there's better, more smart, you know, people in, in regards to the operation side of the business than I was for sure. And so scaling from, you know, six to 60 was not something that was super interesting to me. I love the creative component. I love developing and designing the brands and building the teams. And so I sold some equity to those guys and created another brand called Seymour's, uh, which is a sustainable seafood concept. Opened that up in 2015. Uh, I, you know, I wanted to see if I had what it took to, 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 to do it twice in a row. And, and that one was a home run. And uh, I raised money very quickly after that one and scaled that thing to six restaurants um, in about three years and uh, took on a partner who I knew I was going to make the CEO of that company so that I could go out and create again. And here we are today. I'm, I'm, I'm going to launch another business called Creatures of Habit. Can you talk a bit more? Actually, let's backtrack first, because I would love to know when you opened the meatball shop when you were 28, what were some of the biggest lessons, but also sort of the biggest ego checks? Oh my gosh, so many ego checks. Uh, you know, ego, I've learned to say over the years, ego is not your amigo. Um, you know, when you're young and you, you know, I spent years in restaurants and I thought I knew a lot, right? But, you know, just because you're a technician doesn't mean you're going to be a great owner operator. Right. Um, you know, just because you're an amazing plumber doesn't mean that you should go opening up, go and open up a, a plumbing business. And I learned that through a great book that I would highly recommend anybody listening to this podcast read if they haven't read it yet called The E-Myth Revisited uh, by a guy named Michael Gerber. It's an amazing book. Um, but basically, uh, I thought I knew a lot more than I did. And I felt like my voice needed to be heard on a regular basis. Um, I am an empathic, compassionate, like kind person. Um, but when it came to something that I thought I wasn't sort of expert at, at the, the wee age of 28, having never opened a business before, um, I, I definitely wanted to be heard. And I remember very clearly about a year and a half in and you're sitting at, I actually, I actually posted about this the other day it was so like apparent how much I've changed over the years. But we were sitting at a, at a, at a board meeting and this, this, uh, this guy who's part of the company now um, and has been for a long time, Sandy Beal, founded Ruby Tuesdays, ran that company for 25 years as a CEO to like a $3 billion business. Uh, he took me aside after this board meeting and he said, you know, Mike, you're fucking smart. I love you. You got to shut your fucking mouth, man. You just got to shut up, dude. You, you talk too much. You, you know, you're, you're, just, you're just getting yourself into trouble. Every time you open your mouth, you just get yourself into trouble. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, you don't need to say 95% of the things that you say in a board meeting. You just don't. Like the smart person um, sits there and listens because you cannot listen if you're talking. I mean, you cannot learn if you're talking. And, 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 and honestly, he's like, I watch you because I think you've got something to offer, but you don't even listen when you're not talking. You're just waiting to speak. And I was like, oh my God, this guy's got me. And, uh, and that day was like really hard for me to not want to be like F off. Right. Um, but it was impossible to, because this guy is like 40 years, my senior and knows what he's talking about more than anybody I had ever encountered in my path or journey so far. So that was a big ego check. You know, the other thing that a number of things happened, my business partner, Daniel Holzman and I, we grew up together. We're best friends. Thank God today we're still best friends. Um, but when it came to business, the truth is he's a smarter financials, logistics operator than I am way smarter. The dude is just you know, he thinks with the left side of the brain, I think with the creative side of the brain. And when you're opening a business for the first time and you don't have a lot of money or any money, <laughs> um, you have to do everything, right? Like 
it's easy for, for people to sit at the top of the mountain and say, well, you know, you've got to double, triple down on the things that you're good at. And by the way, you absolutely should. Like the more energy you waste on the things that you're naturally not good at, uh, the more time you're spending not on the things that you're, you are good at. Um, so I always say like, as soon as you could find somebody to do the bookkeeping at your restaurant, if you're not a bookkeeper, find that person and get them on the, on the team. Because I did the bookkeep, bookkeeping in the beginning and it took me 10 times longer than it would take somebody who really enjoyed financials and spreadsheets. So, you know, my partner, Dan, and Dan would always just, you know, he would, he would essentially make me feel terrible about not knowing what, what he knew. And, um, I got in, in his face a lot and I, you know, I had, I had to check my ego a lot in the early days. Um, and, uh, and I did, um, and I learned to just, I learned to listen, um, which has been instrumental in, in my, in my path, really just, I say, I say like, like, unless I'm on a podcast like this, where I'm getting asked questions, um, I say very little. And if I want to say something, I feel really passionate about saying something specifically in a group setting, I write it down. Um, I write it down and, um, and then I look at it after the meeting. Um, and, uh, and I, and I explore, uh, how I want to respond to what my thought was there that I felt like I needed to say something. And most of the time, uh, you know, maybe I'll write an email or, um, maybe I'll, I'll call for a one-on-one, but, uh, what I had to say typically, um, either gets resolved by the end of the meeting and I don't have to say a thing or write an email or do a one-on-one. Um, but it's a great practice for me to really, really be, be present and listen, um, as opposed to waiting to speak or talking. Yeah. And I think a lot of people listen to react rather than listen to understand. And it's something that I feel a lot of us struggle with for you. When you came out of that, that meeting, that board meeting, did a switch go off or was it like still a very gradual process, uh, to fine tune the listening aspect and the understanding aspect rather than the talking piece. I mean, I, I definitely needed to be smacked in the head a few more times. Um, you know, and that was either smacked in the head by Sandy, uh, or another one of the board members, a guy named Eli would, would, would mention to me to, to both of us, to Daniel and I both actually, um, or I would get into trouble, right? Like I would say something that would, that would just, that would just like, ruffle feathers and, you know, get everybody, you know, and, and I think it's, and I, you know, I'm talking about it. Like, um, you know, I was sitting at the table, like being an, an animal. It, it wasn't like that. It was more like I, because I was young and everybody else was older than me, I felt like had my voice not been heard, potentially I was not going to be looked at as an important component of the business. and. It's just simply not true because your actions speak far more than your words. Um, and that's what I've also learned in business, right? Like it's the silent assassins. It's the ones that don't say much, but like you never have to think about their responsibilities because they're always done, right? It's like, it's like the, that's the, that's the, you know, like when, when it, like if I, if I bring it to, to the restaurant business, right, there's like a kitchen is a very, very, very hostile place, right? There's fire, there's, there's lots and lots of weapons, knives, sharp knives, like everywhere, just weapons, fire, heat, like testosterone, just intense environment, intense screaming, yelling, things coming in, you know, like just a lot of, a lot of, a lot of, uh, uh opportunity for angst and, um, and you can always see when you walk into a kitchen as an operator and you look around and like, there's people, you know, you know, playing around, messing around, like having a good time. And then there's like the, the person or two that are just focused. And it's not that like, it's not that they're not part of the team, but they're part of their being part of the team is holding the team together because they're just focused and they don't. Um, and I, and I, and I don't, and again, like, you know, similar to like the left side of the brain, right side of the brain, right. There's like 
people are different. It's very, very difficult to change people. It's possible because I'm, I'm a changed human. But, uh, you know, I think, I think having a mix of that stuff is important. I don't think everybody needs to be like, you know, I call them silent assassins, you know, the ones that just don't say much, but get things done. Um, and like, don't ask for, you know, attention or appreciation, or they literally are like, you know, it's kind of like the professional with, with, with shock, whatever that movie, that movie that came out in the early nineties, right? Like didn't really care about getting a pat on the back, but just like hit his target every time. No one knew. I want to talk a bit about your transition from being this party animal to saying no more. How hard was that transition to make? Because you're a changed man now. And I think you were a changed man probably when you opened uh, when you opened your first restaurant and when, and when you said goodbye to nightlife to that extent. But what were sort of the hardest changes that you had to make at that point? Um, well, if I really think about it, you know, I, I was exposed to uh, alcohol and drugs at a very young age because in New York City, I don't know how we did it, but, you know, I, my, 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 the apartment that I grew up in was pretty, um, pretty hostile. My dad was a, was a, was kind of a sick person and, uh, he and I just did not get along. And so I made it my job to spend as little time there as possible. And it was a small apartment that we grew up in. It was like 600 square foot, one bedroom, my mother, my sister, my father, and I, and my sister and I shared a bedroom. And so it was just tough. And I wanted out all the time. And so my way of getting out was connecting with the kids that were a little bit older who were out, you know, kids that were 12 years old were not really out. And I was. And so by the time I was 13, I was going to like nightclubs. And the way we got into nightclubs as little, as like little teenagers was, you know, there'd be like a drag queen at the door of like the limelight. And she'd like come down and we'd kiss her on the cheek and she'd let all of us kids in, you know? And, uh, and it was, it was like New York city in the, in the early nineties. Um, and so like, you know, I was going to the tunnel and I was going to the limelight. It was this crazy kid running around. Um, my, you know, it was hard on me, my relationship with my parents, but, but then it, it turned pretty quickly and it became very hard on them because I became, uh, an impossible kid to manage. Um, and I was out there hustling, you know, like I was out there just, doing what I, you know. So by the time I was 15, the child services had, had gotten involved in my family. Um, you know, they, there was uh, police were at my house. I mean, there was things that were like not going well. And so they had threatened to put me in foster care. And I said, there's no way I'm already out. Like I'm leaving. So I moved out of my parents' house when I was 15 and I was off to the races. And I, for the next, you know, eight years, it was just like, you know, I just went, I, I, I went hard. I, I lived, I lived at night and, um, worked at night, always had a job at night. Um, but I worked at night, lived at night, went to bed at six, seven o'clock in the morning every day, woke up at four or five in the afternoon, went straight to work. Like that was my life for a while. And I, I really, you know, it was, it was a tough, uh, it was a tough time in my life. At 23, I knew that if I didn't, like I saw what was happening to the friends around me. Kids were dying um, and uh, kids were getting arrested and going to jail. And I just knew that that wasn't me. I, I knew I, I, I was, I always somehow found myself in a good situation. You know, like at 17, I was living in this massive loft in Soho above the APC store on, on, on Mercer between Prince and Spring. You know, and I lived there for like two years, like this 16, 17 year old kid in this like amazing loft downtown, like, you know, with like a de Kooning on the wall. And then people would be like, how did you like what? You know, like I found I, I was able to get myself into these uh, like cool situations. It's like out of a movie. And uh, but I was killing myself. And so I got a, I, I, I had slept through work and my job at that point was um my life. I loved my job. I, I, I was very passionate about food. I was working at this great Italian restaurant. Um, I was also very passionate about wine. Like I genuinely really was studying wine. Um, and, uh, this restaurant had the arguably the best Italian wine list in New York city, a small little place called Frank restaurant. Anyway, I slept through work 
for the umpteenth time. Frank was like my, like my surrogate father. And he basically was like, Mikey, I love you. I'm not going to watch you do this to yourself. This is too much. Like, I can't do it. You've been working, you've worked here since you're 20 years old. I've watched you slowly like fall off a a cliff and like, I have to fire you, man. I I just, I can't, I can't do it. It's not going to happen on my time, on my watch. And I begged for my job and I begged for my job. And he just was like, no, I'm sorry, man. I can't put you behind the bar. You know, like you're, you've got a real problem you need to address. And so I said, what if I get sober? And he said, well, if you get sober, I'll give you an opportunity to, uh, to work at the restaurant. I can't put you behind the bar, but you can come in at eight o'clock in the morning and clean the restaurant with the porters. And I was like, that, like, that's what I, he's like, I don't know what to tell you, man. Like you need some discipline. You need to, you need to do something different. And if no one else can help you with it, I, I, you know, I think maybe this could be a good solution. And so I did that. And so for about 30 days, I'd show up at the restaurant, uh, at 8am call Frank let him know I was there, clean the restaurant with the porters. And I got sober and it saved my life uh, without a doubt. I was, I, I needed something like that to push me over the edge. Something that, you know, something that I loved very dearly, which was my work, my job, the restaurant. I want, I loved it there, man. I, I was, I loved that place. And Frank took me under his wing and said, you know, I'm going to help you. And so between Frank and a couple of other guys that knew that I was you know, headed down this really, or I was pretty far down this really dark path. Uh, these other guys that I looked up to older than me, um, like one entrepreneur, one like combat sport athlete basically dragged me into a, into a Muay Thai gym very quickly. As soon as I started going, as soon as I started getting sober, uh, they said, you know, you're going to go to AA and then you're going to come right here. And this is what you're, and then you're going to go to work. And so they dragged me into this Muay Thai gym and I became obsessed, absolutely obsessed with Muay Thai. And, uh, and between AA and Muay Thai and Marcus and Gavin, uh, and Frank, uh, everything changed in my life. Uh, I learned, I learned discipline. I learned self-respect. I learned integrity. I learned what it meant to really get my ass kicked and set and, and get back up like without flinching. Um, I learned to face my fear every single day. I learned consistency. I learned about habits. Um, and I learned that no one is too old to change. Um, all they have to do is it. <laughs> all you have to do is change. And it's such a hard concept for so many people. However, I know it's totally possible. I did it. Um, and I'm not saying it's easy. It's a, it's a simple idea, right? Like, oh, you're doing something that you know is killing you. All you got to do is stop doing it. Um, you know that you're, you know, eating way too much of that. No, well, all you got to do is stop eating that and start eating this, you know? Oh, you don't know, like you want to get in shape and you haven't exercised ever. Hmm. All you got to do is get outside and take a walk for 20 minutes to start, you know, like you want to start opening you know, you want to open up a business for the first time. Why don't you start making commitments first thing in the morning to yourself and start stacking little wins that way. And then once you start stacking those little wins and building confidence in the little wins that you have complete control over, then you can take a step into an arena where you don't have any control and there's a lot of uncertainty but you have the confidence because you know that you can stick to a commitment. Yeah. I think, it, I mean, that's beautifully said. And it looks like you've had some very key role models slash mentors in your life that have taught you some very specific, uh, some very specific lessons. Have any lessons come through your parents that have stuck with you, like with your relationship with your dad or your mom, that things that till this day you were like, you know, those are the people who taught me this and I'm grateful for that. Oh, without a doubt. Um, so my mother is just like uncontrollably kind. She's just a warm heart, warm soul. I mean, she's kind of a pain in the butt sometimes, but my mom has, you know, she, there's not a bad bone in her body. Um, and she, uh, also, you know, my mother taught me about work ethic. Um, my mom, worked for the same dentist for 35 years, I think. 
And she would get to work at seven o'clock in the morning and she would come home from work at seven o'clock at night between six and seven o'clock at night. And so she was up at, you know, five forty-five in the morning and showered and ready to go, you know, helping us get our stuff together. And she was out the door, you know, six forty-five. Um, and, um, and so I watched my mom just consistently day in and day out do that. And I think that definitely made an impact on me, uh, work ethic wise. Um, my father, on the other hand, <clears throat> was, I mean, I can honestly say that even though our relationship was really, really difficult, uh, and gosh, I wish he was still alive today so that I could show him where I'm at. Um, because I think he would really actually, uh, be proud. Um, but my father taught me a few things that have shaped the man I am today, even though we had such tough time seeing eye to eye. My dad, I remember it was like, it was yesterday. And this is somewhat of a controversial, um, like value, uh, right now. But I, I, I think it's only fair to say, because it has made me it has really helped shape the man I am. You know, I remember very clearly my father and I, I must've been somewhere between three and five years old. We were waiting for the elevator in our building and I, the elevator door opened and I ran into the elevator and my dad grabbed me by the back of my neck, pulled me out of the elevator, embarrassing me because there were other people around. Um, I don't think, I don't say this is the way to do this with children. I would never, I would never do this with my kids, but, but this is what my dad did. It was 1983. And this is like totally acceptable. Grabbed me by the back of my neck, pulled me out of the elevator, turned me around, looked at me dead in the eye, held me by both of my shoulders and said, you never, ever, ever, ever walk in front of a woman ever again. You understand? And I was like, and, um, that's, that put the fear of God in me, uh, taught me about, uh, respecting women and, and, uh, and being, and, and, and being a gentleman. Right. And so some people today would, you know, don't think that that's the way to conduct, right. You know, you treat everybody equally. And, and so the way I respond to that is, I don't walk in front of anyone. <laughs> I just don't, I, I, my, you know, like I, that, that, that time with my father there really, you know, I, I'm just, I, 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 I put other people first in, in most cases. Um, uh, and I'll talk about like how I put myself actually first in, in every day, but, but like when I, when I navigate through the world, you know, I mean, if, if, if I'm walking out of a, grocery store, like I'm standing by the door, holding the door for like the 19 people that are, you know, in front of her and behind me. And my wife hates, she absolutely hates. She's like, Oh God, it's, but it's ingrained in me. Right. My father like printed that in, in, in my brain. Um, so being a gentleman was something that my father taught me. Um, my father also taught me, uh, that, uh, eye contact is, 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 is incredibly important. Um, especially, when you're meeting somebody for the first time and you're shaking their hand. Um, and he said, always shake, shake hands, man or woman, you shake hands, you put your hand out to shake someone's hand, you give a firm handshake and you make sure to make eye contact. And that was a, a lesson that my dad taught me from early on, um, which I think is, uh, is, is very, very important, you know? And, and I think far too many uh, parents don't take the time to, to, to share that like super, super important value of connectivity, you know, eye contact, firm handshake, like it's important. Um, it's very important, especially in today's world, right? Like you, I mean, today I, we're not given as many handshakes as we used to, right? Because of COVID, but, but you know, when, when you meet somebody for the first time, uh, you have one chance to make an impression, right? Like one, you have only, you only have one opportunity. Like, yeah, maybe you're given a second chance, but most of the time, the first time you meet somebody, especially of importance, you have one chance to, to say, Hey, this is me. And, you know, depending on how well you do, that person is either going to remember you or not. Uh, and so I just say that that was a value that my dad taught me. And then the last one, which I think is kind of funny, but has certainly helped shape who I am today is my dad said, Whenever you walk into the bathroom, you lift up the toilet seat. And when you're done, you put the toilet seat back down. 
you know, <laughs> that, that you might not think that that means a lot, but I could promise you, you know, I notice every time somebody pisses on the toilet seat, man, it drives me absolutely bonkers. Like, or leaves the toilet seat lit up. I'm like, you know, I just, it just, it, I, it's, it's like a massive pet peeve of mine, probably because it was a massive pet peeve of my father's. Um, but you know, those three things are integral in, in my life. And I love it because they're like, they're like good foundational principles to live your life by, right? Like they're not, mm-hmm. and they have to be taught. Like you won't necessarily learn them yourself. I think they're, they're ones that have to be taught. Well, the toilet seat thing is really a metaphor, right? It's really sort of, it's a metaphor for, um, have respect, respect. My respect was like a massive, massive part of my father's DNA. My grandfather was, uh, you know, an officer in the Navy fought in world war II. respect was everything. And so, you know, my father, like all the lessons that he taught me that stuck, um, are sort of, you know, grounded in respect. Right. And, uh, and so, you know, you know, I've, 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 converted or, you know, sort of transformed the toilet seat thing, which now my kids are, you know, I've got my three-year-old kid is like up and down with the toilet seat all the time. Uh, but you know, like I, I, I've, I've made, you know, I've, I've, I've transformed that tradition in my life to like how I, how I leave a room, right. I never, ever, I leave a room exactly how I want that room found in the gym. I'm at a home gym. Like, I never leave a weight on the floor ever, ever, ever. You know, I like everything is put back to where it's supposed to go uh, on my way out so that when I come back in, I feel like uh, there's no stress, right? There's no extra, like anxiety is, 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 is real in in life today. So any opportunity that you can, you can remove anxiety for, you know, five minutes worth of work or less, it's worth it. One of the things you touched on a few minutes ago was um, that you that you put others first, but you put yourself first during the day or something along those lines. Could you touch on that a little bit more? Because that's super interesting. <clears throat> yeah. So uh, I guess I'll go back to this idea that like, I believe that my purpose is to be of service and to make others happy. That is genuinely what I've always done naturally. That That's always made me uh, happy. And, um, and it's just sort of like, I've, I've just gravitationally been pulled towards helping others, making others standing up for others. Um, not wanting to hurt any other people's feelings. Um, you know, figuring out really strategic ways to tell people bad news, uh, without making them feel bad. Right. Like I spent a lot of time as a leader trying to, uh, not get you know, not have the, the, the bad news be a hurdle for me in the delivery, but have, have the bad news be like, uh, uh, a, a, a really, a, a strategic exercise on how to get people excited about bad news, <laughs> you know? Um, and I think that's what made me, uh, makes me a leader or, or, or a good leader today. Uh, when it comes to myself, what I've learned also, and this came from, you know, the days of, of me going from being a, a, you know, a party, party animal to uh, a responsible human being was that I am the most important person in my life. Right. Um, and, and uh, self-care is, is, is actually not selfish. Uh, self-care is when you really break it down selfless. Why? I don't think that you should sacrifice time with friends, family, business to take care of yourself. If you really, really are passionate about living your best life or the, being the best version of yourself, or, um, you know, uh, you know, like, like if, if that is something that is actually authentic and real for you, then you do put yourself first. However, you don't sacrifice time with others. And so what I do is I wake up at five o'clock in the morning. Uh, you know, I wake up at five o'clock in the morning and I've got a morning routine that I do every single morning, like clockwork. It's like uh, like robotic, but it's, it's, it's so, it's like brushing my teeth and putting my contact lenses. There's a few other things that I surround that with um, that add, add these little wins that we talked about earlier to my day. Um, you know, and by 5.30, I'm writing in my journal. 
uh, for five minutes. And by 545, I'm in the gym lifting weights. And I do that for about an hour and change. And by seven o'clock, you know, 7.15, I'm sitting out the, at the breakfast table with my wife and kids, having had two and a half hours of, uh, of me time to really focus on me because when I can do that and I'm well inside because I've taken that time to focus on myself, I'm a better father, husband, business partner, business owner, employer, uh, friend, son, brother, everything. It all, I'm just better. I'm just better. And I don't mean, oh, I'm better. I mean, I'm, a, I'm now going to be able to help you in a real way. Like now I not only am going to be able to help you, but like, I, I actually want to help you. Um, because I feel good about myself. And, you know, um, I think that far too people, far too many people, uh, over, you know, overlook, um, that, right. Like I know for certain, I know for certain that if, um, you know, people were to change what they eat, what they ate for breakfast and walk 30 minutes a day, the world would be a different place. Like, I don't think, I don't question, I don't quander. I know that if 10% of the obesity epidemic individuals in the United States of America changed what they ate for breakfast and walked for 30 minutes a day, we'd see a major shift. Yeah, and to that point, like, firstly, going back to your, to your morning routine, for me, personally as well it's been it's been an evolution in my personality and it's been an evolution in my in my life and my productivity and everything because one of the things i've realized is when you when you wake up early and early enough before everyone else's day starts like you do right the first 2 hours of your day are the only 2 hours of your day that are inside of your control everything outside of that as soon as you have you know, breakfast with your kids, anything can happen on the breakfast table, right? As soon as you go into work, anything can happen at work during the day. Like you're completely not in control of that. But if you can just control and add value adding habits to your morning routine for the first two hours of your day, to your point, you become the best version of yourself to everyone you interact with for that day. And I've realized, by the way, like if I skip my morning routine, I'm... I'm not as pleasant to be around, nor am I as attentive or present or, um, or productive or any of those things. Also, by the way, like I agree, but, but just to add uh, even, even uh, another layer on top of that, like getting a sufficient amount of sleep also makes you a, can change, you know, like I know that when I get great sleep, I'm making great decisions the next day. Most of the time, 95% of the time, if I get poor sleep, I'm making like poor decisions. I'm not feeling good about myself. Like I'm just not, you know? And so like my morning routine starts at like nine 30 the night before, because that's when I'm trying to be in bed, you know, you know? And so just to that point, because I, so I'm a big believer in morning routines, evening routines and quality sleep. Um, what do you do in the evening? Like, what's your routine there? So <clears throat> these days, because I'm not in the restaurants um, anymore, I'm upstate and um, working on this new business. I do my best to stop work at six o'clock at night. Um, and that means like, and it doesn't happen all the time, but 90% of the time it does. Where I say, you know what? I've practiced patience. If I didn't get everything done on like, you know, like if I didn't get all of this stuff done, like today, you know, it's okay because I have to, I have to practice patience and balance so that I can also be human. And so at six o'clock, I look at my list and I say, is there anything on here that absolutely cannot get through the next 12 hours without my attention? And I sift through the long list and I say, actually, everything is fine. Nothing, nothing, nothing terrible is going to happen. I mean, it's, it would be great to get done, but you know, I could just do it tomorrow. And then I quickly look at the list and I put a one, two, three 
next to the things that I need to make sure the first three things I get done in the beginning of the next day, I close my book, I close my computer, I shut my phone down and I go hang out with my family. The thing that I do is I, I actually am a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big fan of this zero THC CBD uh, oils blends that I use. And so there's like three blends. There's one that's called relief, one that's called calm and one that's called sleep. So at six o'clock, I just take the calm blend CBD and I've been doing it for a long time now. And it really has helped me with recovery and sort of just like, like dampering my anxiety. So I, I do my, my calm CBD and then I go, I go hang with my family. I have, we have dinner at like six pretty much every day. Um, and I sit with the boys. I, I, I really try to get, you know, I transition from work to family. Um, and, um, and I like to have little markers in there. So that's why like the CBD, like really does help me say, okay, Mike, you're doing this. This is, this is your transition from like your insane, like 90,000 mile an hour mind to, Hey, like I've got these two sons and a wife that I really love and I really want to be present for. And so I sit down at the table and we eat and we talk and then we, you know, and then we play a, um, a game, right? Like either I'm throwing the football around with the kids trying to not, you know, knock them out, um, <laughs> because they, you know, they're young, uh, or we'll play a board game or, or something like that. And then every other night, my wife and I switch on and off to, you know, putting the kids down. Um, I, uh, around eight o'clock at night, I take this, uh, magnesium supplement called calm. And so I, I have my calm magnesium supplement. And then I do this, um, every night, you know, I've got a sweet tooth. And just so you know, like I am a really, I, I'm a, like, I'm an insanely regimented ritualistic habit guy, uh, just cause it, it, it really does help keep me like, you know, like I'm not, I don't think that control is absolutely necessary in my life, but I do know that we have control over very little. So I do want to have control over the things that I can. Uh, and so I do structure my day pretty regimented. Um, so at eight o'clock I have my calm at eight 15, I make this, this, uh, this, protein smoothie, um, that I figured out how to make this smoothie so that it really does taste, look and feel like ice cream. Uh, but it's, it's not. Um, and so I make this smoothie at eight 15 every night. Um, I sit down with my wife, typically we'll watch an episode of something on Netflix, hang out, talk. Um, and then we're, we're, you know, pretty much off to bed, uh, at nine 30, I take my sleep drops, uh, my, my, my CBD sleep drops. Um, I, uh, I, you know, get into the bathroom, I wash my face, I put on some face cream. Um, and, uh, I have something called a chili pad, which is, um, which is a, like a, a mattress topper that actually keeps my side of the bed cool. Um, which is pretty great for me because I run hot because of all the training and, uh, and so I like to have that thing on. So I put that on. It keeps my bed, my side of the bed at like 60 degrees. Um, I sleep with an eye mask. Um, and uh, right before I get into bed, I, I thank the universe for keeping me sober and, uh, and, and happy. And I, I go to bed and I, I, I if I'm, if I want to like, if I'm trying to learn something, um, I will put in my AirPod, my AirPods and I'll listen to something uh, on Audible. Um, I do that probably four nights a week. Um, not every night, um, couple of nights a week, I'll do, um, some, uh, uh, this, uh, this, uh, melatonin spray. If I feel like I'm like a little anxious or whatever. Um, and then I, I tend to get like somewhere between seven and eight hours of pretty good sleep. And I pay very close attention to my sleep. I have this, this whoop thing, you know, my goal is these days, like consistency in my sleep when I'm going to bed, when I'm waking up. And then I'm really paying close attention to my slow wave sleep. I'm really trying to get that slow wave up, uh, you know, to if I'm sleeping eight hours, like I like my REM and my slow wave to be somewhere between three and four hours between the two. Um, and yeah, and so that's my pre, that's my, that's my, my nighttime routine. Yeah, I love that. And you know what I, what I sort of thought about in the last few days is that the magic happens through the mundane. We're both, I think both you and I are regimented. I think you might be a little bit more regimented than I am. But I, I realize that when I stick to my routines, value adding routines, of course, some of them are a lot of fun. Some of them maybe not as fun, but I know I'm doing them for the right reasons. If I do them consistently, 
things start happening, right? And good things start happening. If I stray away from it and I become unorganized and and I don't stay on top of things, you you really realize how quickly a difference that makes. I don't know if you've sort of realized the same thing. Oh yeah, I mean I'm uh, like immediately for me. It's and it's and it's and so you know I I also just want to put a you know say that like this does sound. Like when I say it out loud, what, what my evening routine is like, and I haven't even told you about my morning routine, but like when I say out loud, what my evening routine is, it does sound like so structured and like, like potentially this guy's a little too stiff. The truth is, is that that stuff happens in like two minutes. It's like, it's like, it's, it, it, it sounds like a lot when I say it out loud because of the time and the structure of it. But the truth of the matter is, I don't even, I don't even like it. It's so ingrained in me that I, it give, you know, I've got this tattooed on my hand and I promised I would never get anything tattooed. I've got a lot of tattoos. I promised my mother, I'd never get anything tattooed on my hand or my neck or my face. But I was reading this book by Jacko Willink called Dichotomy of Leadership. And he says in the book, discipline equals freedom. And I had never heard it quite like that before. But that is my life. And that is the truth. I believe that that could be my, that is my, my life mantra, right? I am free. I can do whatever I want to do. I, I do believe that, you know, I believe it because I show up and I know how to commit to something. I know how to say, I'm like, you know, there's a lot of talkers out there and I'm, you know, I don't know what distinguishes the talkers from the walkers. I can't tell you what, what that, that piece of, maybe it's DNA. I don't know, but I do know that there's a lot more talkers than there are walkers and it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, discipline is the answer, right? Being able to say you're going to do something and then doing it. That is what separates the men from the boys and the women from the girls, right? Like that is just the, the crux of it, right? Do what you say you're gonna do, and watch everything around you change. Um, and that, and that, by the way, goes for the good and the bad, right? Like, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just that, that's just the truth. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I, I think that having systems are just important. And I, in business, like I hate. SOPs and, you know, setting up all of the analytics and the reporting and all that stuff. Like it's not fun. Right. But once it's in place, once it's, once it's done, you can really grow. You can grow, right? Like imagine a football team, right? Imagine I'm talking about American football. I know, I know that football for you is, is, is soccer. Um, or soccer for us is your football, but American football, right? Quarterback says, hut, hut, hike. He's got the ball. Every single man on the field is like, runs, right? If you didn't know anything about football, you'd be like, that's so chaotic. Like, they're just, they're just running into each other. And like, what, you know, like they're, just, but the truth is, is that every single person on that field knows exactly where they're running and knows exactly the second that they're going to turn around and the second they're going to turn this way, you know, like it's all calculated so much so that the quarterback gets the ball in his hand and just throws it and he knows exactly where he's throwing it and he doesn't even look sometimes that the receiver is going to be there. So that is the system working, right? Like, you know, if he looked up and that person wasn't going to be there because maybe he got dragged, he's got like four other options that he knows to check in the matter of a minute, a second and a half. And so because of those systems, we're able to walk, you know, and then every once in a while, poof, take a risk, right? Like, oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we know this is all covered. Like everything here is good. We can, we can start to well, we'll add something here. We'll add something there because all this stuff is covered. If none of this stuff was covered and everybody was playing catch up and like 
you know, so I, I, I think about the same thing with my life, right? If I am confident in myself that I know, you know, when somebody asks me to be somewhere at, at six o'clock in the morning, it's not like, oh my God, how am I going to? It's like, yeah, let's go. I got it covered, man. I'm up at five, you know? I love it. Could you, before we get to the last question, I just want to, I do quickly want to get into your morning routine because I feel it's going to be an interesting one. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I wake up anywhere uh, between five and 5.15. I don't have an alarm. Um, my body just sort of wakes up, at, you know, most of the time at 5 a.m. Um, and uh, the first thing I do when I know that I'm awake um, like when, when I'm like, okay, I am awake now. The first thing I do is I take my eye mask off. I open my eyes and I smile from ear to ear and I count to 15. And I know that sounds crazy. I'll tell you why I do it. Um, a lot of us wake up with anxiety immediately, right? Especially if you're a busy person and you have a lot going on or you're not a busy person and you're stressed out about not being busy. Um, and what am I going to do with my life? Uh, right. Anxiety is the first thing that a lot of human beings sort of wake up with. Uh, so for me, the first thing I do, because I'm not, I'm not, I'm no snowflake, right? Like I, I wake up with anxiety too. I beat, I beat the anxiety up with a smile. So I literally open my eyes. I smile from ear to ear like this in bed. Think about my wife and kids, my kids smiles. I most mornings get like an out loud laugh because of how ridiculous I know I look like I'm, I know I'm, I look ridiculous doing it. Um, and then, um, and I, I immediately feel this positivity and optimism, like wash over my body. Like, like I could feel it, like almost like the serotonin releasing from my brain because of how hard I'm smiling. And then that little laugh really does make me feel good. Uh, are you saying and, anything? Are you saying anything in your head at this time, or it's just the smile? I'm counting to fifteen, and I'm thinking about my. I'm typically thinking about my two sons smiling. Like that's like for whatever reason, that's where my head goes. I'm like gratitude, those boys. I live for those kids, and that's what happens. So like I, I think of them smiling. Um, you know, the, the the picture that I get in my in my mind most mornings is me sitting at the breakfast table with my two kids and my wife, and they're all smiling. Um, and it makes me really happy, almost emotional when I say it out loud. Um, and, um, and then I, it's such a big part of my morning. I can't believe I got emotional thinking about it. It's so weird. Um, but it's powerful for me because I think it's so important to, to live in gratitude. Um, but anyway, that's my first shot in the morning of gratitude. And then, uh, I roll out of bed. I walk into the bathroom. I am also a, a professional bodybuilder, which is kind of funny to say, but I am. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a men's physique bodybuilder. And so I'm currently in a prep, which is essentially four months. I'm, 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 about, I'm, I'm about four weeks into a four-month contest prep where I'm shredding down to like 3% body fat. And so every morning um, when I'm in prep or not, I, I take a piss and I step on the scale to weigh myself. Um, and, uh, and that's just for my coach, just to know exactly where I'm at. Cause we're always, we have goals that we're trying to hit. And, uh, and then I, I put cold, cold water on my face. I brush my teeth. I put on my contact lenses. And then, um, after I do that, I get on my knees and I ask the universe, um, for help. Uh, I say, you know, God, please help me get through this day sober and of service. And then I have a few other things that I say. My morning prayers are really important to me. I'm not a religious guy. Um, I don't go to temple, mosque, church, um, and I don't have anything against that. But I am a very, very spiritual guy, and I have a connection with uh, with a power that's greater than myself. And so that's not for everybody. It is for me. Um, and it grounds me. And so I say my prayers in the morning. I do 50 push-ups right after I say my prayers. Um, and then I slowly, quietly walk out of the bathroom because it's right next to our bedroom. Sometimes my wife is actually awake um, at that point. Most of the time she's not. If she is awake, the kids are typically in the bed with her and because uh, they'll wake up or she'll go get them. And uh, I kiss everybody. I go downstairs. I make a little coffee. I write in my journal. 
which is a really cool journal that I have. Um, that's, it's not, it's not just a, like a, you know, a, a, a free, a free, uh, style journal. It's like a, it's like a journal planner. So it prompts me with questions. Um, and that's sort of my second shot of gratitude every morning it takes me about mm, five to 10 minutes to fill out. Um, and then, um, I will go right into the gym. The gym is in my garage. And so I go into the gym, I work out. Um, and by the time I'm done, you know, everybody's pretty much up and having breakfast. And that's when I walk back in and, uh, and, and hang with the family. Um, and, um, you know, I go take a shower and then I, I don't, I don't eat my first meal until after I train. Uh, the first meal that I have every single day is the exact same thing. I, it's a blend of, of oatmeal, plant-based protein powder, vitamin D3, omega-3 fatty acids, pink Himalayan salt, and a little Ceylon cinnamon, uh, some shaved almonds. And then I take some supplements and that's at about, at that point, it's just, just before 9am. Uh, and then I'm in my office by nine. So basically like it, it essentially asks you to like, you know, this it's, it, it, it has you write out your day hour by hour. And then it asks you questions on this side and on this side, at the end of the day, you start your day here, you write a couple of things on the top and then, but it's, it's really great just cause it, 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 you know, it like, if I'm ever feeling lost or stressed out, like I will open up the planner and I'll say, oh, it's one Oh, okay. 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 I'm back. I'm back. I'm back on. I'm back on. You know, um, I, you know, all these things that we're talking about here, I think are, it, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, right? I need to have, I need to manage every aspect of my life. I don't have people telling me what to do. Um, and so I've just learned over the years that the more of a system I create for myself, an organizational system, uh, the more freedom I have, right? Like, if I, if I, if I want to cancel a meeting, I do, you know, like if I've, I've got other things, if I've got some things going on where I can't be somewhere, I can call someone and say, Hey, can you step in for me? You know? I, and so I know that a lot of the stuff we talked about today was, was, was like about structure and foundation, but I gotta be honest. Like, I think that stuff is, 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 is the, is the magic. It's just because like without that stuff, you're not able to really grow and build and create. Um, and also like you got to, you got to like the, the, the stuff that I talked about, about putting, putting yourself first, um, but not sacrificing time with, with business and family by doing so. Like if you woke up one hour earlier, one hour earlier, right? Every day. That's seven waking hours a week, additional time that you have. That's, you know, 28 hours a month. So every month you get over a full 24 hours of waking time to focus on yourself, right? And 15 full days a year, 15 full days. It's not like 15, like, 24 hours where you're sleeping eight hours, you know, it's, it's like, if you were able to stay up for 15 days straight, right. Of just time to focus on yourself, um, your life would change. So I just, you know, I, 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 I ask people to just sort of look at it that way. One hour a day, one hour extra, you know, my, my last question before we close, and this is kind of a deep one. One of the things that I saw, I, think on your Instagram profile or on your website and it said fear isn't real. What do you think is stopping people from pursuing their dreams? Because you're the type of person you've just gone after it, right? Like you've you you've chased all the all your curiosities. And and I think you're in a position now where um of course you're ambitious and, and you're you're still chasing more and you're still going after more, but you've you've pursued your dreams. How do you what do you think is stopping people from pursuing theirs? I mean fear. <laughs> without, without, without it, without a doubt, there's no, uh, and, and that's the worst part about it, right? Because fear 
someone said to me once, fear stands for false evidence appearing real. Um, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, there's, an, there's another, there's another uh, sort of acronym for that, which is fuck everything and run. And that's what a lot of people do, right? You know, when they're faced with fear, because like fear is an ego, like ego is just feeds off of fear, right? Like, you know, when, whenever the ego gets an opportunity to tell you, no, don't do that. You're not smart enough for that. You can't do that. What you, you're not, you're, you, you don't have enough experience to go. Like, what do you, like that voice that, you know, is, is alive and well in most of us, um, you know, that is what stops people from taking the leap. And uh, we never, ever grow. We never grow in comfort. It's hard to grow. It's not hard to enjoy comfort, but it's hard to grow in comfort. When you're a child and you've got those like pains in your legs and your arms and your back, those are growing pains, friend. You're growing and your body is physically growing and it hurts. It's uncomfortable, right? So like living and embracing, and I, I guess I would want to leave with this, right? Something that I say um, often to friends and to employees and to coworkers, you know, you got to learn to love the heart and the hurt. Not only love it, but like, really embrace it, right? Because when it, when it hurts, you're learning. And when it's hard, it means there's a challenge. And that means that you're going to be exercising your mind, body, and spirit. And so in those moments where fear is right there and it's just looking at you, um, that's when you can really get self-aware and say, this is, this is, this is when I've got to turn it up. This is when I am going to be able to not prove to that person or this person or that person, but really challenge myself to see what I've got. Fuck it. What's going to happen? So I fail. I'm going to learn. Who cares if I fail? People say life is short. Life is long. Life is long. Long. I'm 40. I can't believe it. I feel like I'm 25. But I've got like another 60 years of crushing. You know how long 60 years is? 60 years, I was negative 20. I feel like I've been here for, even though I feel 25, like, you know, like mentally and physically, like I, I also feel like I've had like a long time on alive. You know, life is long. Like we have opportunity to fail and get back up and fail and get back up. And it's okay. People actually respect it right? Like if you fail and never try again, you're probably not going to get the respect, but people really respect those that get hit and just pop back up, get hit and get popped back up, you know? And so I would leave everybody with this concept of really learn to love the heart and the hurt. And I mean that with all of my heart, like when the fear is in your face and you want to run and you want to hide and you want to, you, you know, your first thing, the first thing I do, I look to my left, I look to my right, I ask for help, I huddle up and I say, fuck this man, we're going to go. And we go. And I failed, <laughs> but I've also won. Yeah, you can never win unless you go and you should never be afraid to ask for help, right? Help is everything. Where can, where can people find you online, Michael? Uh, I'm at Michael Chernow pretty much everywhere. At Michael Chernow, I've got a cool podcast called Born or Made. You can find it, Born or Made with Michael Chernow, anywhere you get your podcast. I'm launching a new brand called Creatures of Habit. You can follow us at Creatures of Habit on Instagram. That's with a K, uh, Creatures with a K. And um, yeah, man, grinding every day. We'll provide all the links and all the references uh, in the description of the show, Michael, really grateful that you made the time. I think just after you finished your morning routine, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. What a fantastic episode with Michael. I hope you learned as much as I did. 
Here are some of my key takeaways. The first is to start listening. The smart person sits there and listens. Think about what you say before you say it. Don't just speak for the sake of it. And I'm a big believer in this, to listen to comprehend rather than to respond. The second thing Michael spoke about is that no one is too old to change. All you have to do is change. If you know you're doing something that's bad for you, that you don't like, all you have to do is stop doing it. It's easier said than done, but it's certainly doable. You just have to take that first step. And finally, allocate some you time during the day. Michael does this in the morning. He wakes up at 5 a.m. and religiously goes through his morning routine, accumulating small wins to start his day. As you all know by now, I'm a huge believer in a strong morning routine, and I highly encourage you to create your own. 